When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I had a teacher in grad school who once said to me that the best books are love letters to one person. And the way that this shifted so entirely for me when he was born is that the last thing he told me became a love letter to my son and to motherhood in general. On this episode, I talked to Laura Dave about her hit novel, The Last Thing He Told Me, which starts when Hannah Hall finds a note from her missing husband that says just one thing, protect her. Hannah instantly knows that the note refers to her husband's 16-year-old daughter, Bailey. And as the federal marshals swoop in, and as she learns about who her husband really is, Hannah must get Bailey to trust her. Laura and I discuss whether you can really know and love someone who has lied to you, what it's like writing to Bruce Springsteen's songs, and learning to be the hero of your own life. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. It's my greatest pleasure to have my wonderful friend, Laura Dave, back on Lit Up to celebrate her crazy, phenomenal, worldwide hit, The Last Thing He Told Me. And welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for coming on Lit Up again. Oh, I am just so happy to have an excuse to get to talk to you for a little while because I miss you and I miss being able to see you in person all the time. 
Usually we'd be doing this over a glass of wine like we usually would and trying to solve my love life. (laughs) Which is solved. (laughs) Which is solved, which is great. But it's like where to jump in. I heard that this book has been brewing for so, so long and then it started potentially back in 2003 mm-hmm. with the Enron scandal. Mm-hmm. What was it about that specific scandal in that moment that just sparked this inquiry in your mind? Well, so for me, I've always been really interested in true crime. And I think something about the Enron scandal in general that I found so interesting was the juxtaposition of where many of the leadership started from where they ended up and sort of the the paradox of like the humanity and the hubris that was involved with that but what was really the the starting point for this book was a Linda Lay Kenneth Lay's wife the CEO's wife gave an interview in which she said my husband's done nothing wrong and i found that so compelling not because i was making a judgment on whether her statement was truthful about their marriage, but I started imagining almost immediately a woman who was telling the truth in that and the, who her who the world was telling her that her husband was, was a complete paradox to who she believed in her soul that, that he was. And the more I was thinking about that, you know, that sort of was brewing in my mind, but I had seen sort of financial scandals play out in books and other scandals play out in books in which the woman in that role is the victim, Um, the victim of her circumstance, the victim of a husband that is lying to her. And what I really wanted to do was sort of invert that and create a woman who in that moment of reeling really becomes the hero of her own life. You know, Gloria Steinem has this great quote about women, how important it is for women to watch other women become the hero of their lives. And I, and so I were marinated with this original idea of thinking about how is how am I going to create this character in which she is a hero right from the get-go, despite what's going on around her. And I didn't really find my way into that until 2012. So what changed in 2012 for you then? In 2011, I got married and we received as a wedding present from good friends this woodturn bowl. And I had never heard about woodturning before. And I was interested in how it was created. And the more I learned about it, the equipment that's used and how it begins with one piece of wood and the patience that's involved, the this physical strength, the attention to detail, I started to think about all of those qualities and infusing all those qualities into Hannah, into this woman. And then I saw my way into who she was going to be and how she was going to see the world. And that was really the shift. And and I sort of knew then how I wanted to start writing. And I started working on the book and it was really different than my other books because it was a thriller. But I was writing it in a similar way, meaning I didn't outline, I didn't know what was going to happen. And in several of those early drafts, um, I thought this was a love story between Hannah and Owen, the husband that goes missing. And then in 2000, and and I put the book down because I was having so much trouble figuring out where I wanted it to go. And then in 2016, I had my son and I realized, oh, this is the primal story of someone becoming a mother. 
And in this case, not to a, a child that she birthed, like so many of us become mothers to people that we choose to mother or animals that we choose to mother. And there's so many found families and chosen families. And for Hannah, it became less about her story concretized for me when I realized it was less about this man and more about the daughter this man left behind who now needed someone and Hannah was becoming that someone. And that's when I realized what the story was. And so I picked it back up in 2018. And then the draft that emerged from that period of time, those 18 months is, is the book in front of you now. Well, I want to delve into who Hannah Hall is mm -hmm. in depth. But before we do, I want everyone to know, because the title of the book is The Last Thing He Told Me, what is the last thing that Owen, her husband, tells her? Well... So it depends how you think about it. The note he leaves before he disappears is a note that says protect her. And it is a note that he leaves. That's the only thing he leaves in in his wake. And Hannah knows that that means his 16-year-old daughter, Bailey. And she knows that he's not going to be prescriptive on how to protect her. To me, the reason that's what he says is it implies a trust that he's not going to know what happens when he has to exit, but he trusts her to do whatever is best for him, uh, best for them, however that looks. And then he says something else to her at a later point in the book, but I won't, I won't ruin that. It is hard to talk about a domestic thriller like this mm -hmm. with you because we don't want to reveal so much. And part of what everyone loves are these twists and turns. I'm just going to like take a break and like go back to our Hannah Hall because I just want to really dive into her because I think I related to her so much because she was, well, she is kind of a fully formed older woman when she meets her person. And I think as I read it, that really defined her for me. Like she has a maturity and I think we both met our people a little later yeah. in life. Yeah. And I'm wondering how that informed, like your experience informed how she would make decisions. I, I love that question. And, and I, I think in some ways Hannah is a tribute to, you know, you see so often depicted in books and on TV and on movies, someone sort of waiting for their person or thinking they would be complete when they found their person. But I knew so many independent women in New York, like you, like I hope I am too, that it was less about finding someone and more about being concerned about finding or settling down with the wrong someone. And that was a character I hadn't seen in a book in that way. She wasn't worried that she was never going to meet someone. That wasn't the issue. The issue is I would rather be alone and live out all these things I want to do than be in the relationship with someone that ultimately isn't, isn't the correct partner for me. Not that there's one partner that's correct, but you know what I'm saying. And so I wanted her to be extremely independent, extremely accomplished in her life. Both things really do define her. And she would have been fine partially because 
of how she grew up and partially because of what she had created on her own to keep going in that manner. And then she meets this person who it really does feel to her like this is what she didn't even know she was looking for or waiting for. And the joyfulness around that union is one of the reasons that when every, you know, we see in sort of flashback in the book, some of those early exchanges and, you know, it creates for her a certainty about who he is and about why she still trusts him. Because I think the other thing that happens in a thriller often, and I love thrillers, I'll read all of them and I don't mind if it turns out that the husband is awful or what have you, you know, I love twists and turns, but I wanted here, which made it a complicated story to tell that despite the details looking different, ultimately she was right to believe that in their love. You know, the quest, I always start a book with a question. And for me, the question here that Hannah finds herself asking pretty much from the get-go, pretty much from the time she has that protector note delivered to her by an unlikely source is, can we ever know the people closest to us? Can we really trust the people that we love? And for me, even at the end of this book, even with everything that happens, there's a resounding yes. And I wanted it. I wanted that to be the case. I want it to be a thriller rooted in hope. There's also a sense that we can love and trust that love so much, mm -hmm. but we can also not know so much about the people we love. Mm -hmm. And I love how you can hold those both in these characters because that's the true about tr the truth about life. Mm -hmm. But so often we want it to be black and white. What I love about Hannah is that she's able to hold those two truths without giving too much away. Well, I really like that. And I, I would say too that like, if I was, so like, if I was describing you to somebody, right? Like I would say all sorts of things about you that also I know a lot of, we've known each other for years, so I know a lot of your biographical details, you know, and I could share the biographical details, but those don't encompass who you are. So I really liked exploring the idea here that you can strip away the biography of someone, which is ultimately part of the mystery that's going on in this story, is that none of the biography of the man she loves matches with who she thought he was. But that beneath all of that, there's still a soulfulness and a permanence to somebody that if they really let you in, really let you be a witness to his or her life, you, you, you are privy to. And that is the real stuff. That is the real connective tissue. Yeah, I love that part of it. It's so, and just the fact that you wanted to write a hopeful book is so refreshing <laughs> for us all. <laughs> what kind of research did you do to prepare to capture what happens when these big financial takedowns happen and husbands or wives who are taken away into police custody? Mm. What happens with the, the rest of the family and how do they act? You know, I, I spoke with a couple of different lawyers to really try to understand what a financial crisis would look like within a firm, like a tech firm like this, what embezzlement looks like. I, one one uh, lawyer I spoke with actually prosecuted a whole 
slew of organized crime cases. And, you know, he had so much insight into, for me, really understanding what happens within a family when this goes on and sort of the cost of being involved in this system, which takes on different, you know, it takes on different trajectories for everybody. But I think what Hannah is really trying to do here and what she makes clear early on is that she doesn't want Bailey falling victim to things that had nothing to do with her. And what that's going to look like is going to be very different if she listens to the FBI, if she listens to the U.S. Marshal Service about what they should do next versus if she trusts her own instinct. And what we have here then is the complication of Hannah because she trusts herself always in terms of her life and her own career, but she doesn't trust herself at all in terms of a maternal role. So we really get to watch her come into herself in this entirely new way because ultimately she's not just deciding what the best thing to do is for her. It might've looked quite different if she was the only person she had to look out for, but it's really what is the best thing to do for Bailey. And really without ruining anything, she decides that the best thing to do is keep her out of a system at all costs. Do you have surly teenagers in your life that you can draw from? <laughs> you know, I actually feel very lucky. I have four godchildren, three of whom live across the street from me and one of whom lives in, in New York. And none of them are particularly surly, though I imagine all of them would be if they found themselves in this situation. But I got some really great readers for Bailey and for understanding Bailey. And also I had a unique window into parenting a teenager that you're not the parent to. And, you know, I think this weird thing happens when you're a grown up, which is sometimes I'll look at my son or I'll look at them and I'll think, well, who's watching me? Like, who's taking care of me? There is this very weird thing that happens when all of a sudden you think of yourself as a grown up and yet you don't think of yourself as a grown up. And so I think for Hannah too, who's thrust into this role of all of a sudden, she is the one in charge of someone who, when she's been in charge of no one but herself her entire life, it's it's jarring and, and eye-opening and very expansive to how you understand what matters to you. When you mentioned earlier that it wasn't until you became a mother mm -hmm. that this shift happened. Yeah. Can you describe that shift? I just think that's such a beautiful thing to hear about from a mom and how that worked its way into the love that is so obviously there, particularly from Hannah to Bailey. Well, you know, I think that the thing that happened that was so surprising to me when I had my son is I, you know, I feel very lucky that I come from a family where my parents were extremely loving. And so I always sort of had the model of a loving home. And I knew I was going to love my son. But I think what surprised me, as strange as it sounds, is how much I like him. Meaning like he's sort of my favorite person. He's my favorite person to spend time with, him and my, and my husband. But I, I just adore him. And I find him incredibly fascinating and getting to see the world through his eyes has been 
the most gratifying and humbling experience I've, I've ever had. And I always think about how books, I had a teacher in grad school who once said to me that the best books are love letters to one person. And the way that this shifted so entirely for me when he was born is that the last thing he told me became a love letter to my son and to motherhood in general. And that's really how it found its way into the book. I started thinking of Bailey and putting myself in Hannah's shoes as as a woman who has that primal urge suddenly, that sacrificial urge to do everything for another person. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that that is that is, you know, a singular experience of someone who gives birth. You know, I think often we find ourselves mothering people that we have nothing to do with birthing. And I think that's so beautiful, the way that a chosen love can end up enlightening us and changing our lives in so many ways. Yeah, I think what you've said about a chosen family Mm -hmm. and for so many of us, you know, who've moved around the world or even moved mm-hmm. across the country, you, we all create our chosen family. Mm-hmm. We have our family, but often there's that other chosen family yep. that ends up completely enhancing and shaping our lives mm-hmm. um, and informing who we are. And I think sometimes those other bonds don't get enough credit. I totally agree with that. I, I, I think if this, you know, when I talk about this being a thriller of hope, I think secondarily, I hope that it is sort of a love letter to the idea of a chosen family. I really feel that way because I, I, you know, the word I, I just used is a word that I think, I think what's surprising, what was surprising to me in the writing of this was realizing how expansive different loves can be for a character's development or our our development. I think one of the reasons why your book has found such an audience is because even though it's a thriller, it still has all the heart and soul that you're talking about. Did you think about writing towards a genre? Like how do you change a structure and a book when it's now in quote a thriller? I think that for me, I love thrillers so much and I love the idea of exploring that, but I knew my own limitations. I cannot write violence. There were other early drafts of this in which there was violence and an attempt at gore and it really ended up looking like two people shaking hands. Like I'm just, that's not who I am and I couldn't do that. And so really it goes back to that Gloria Steinem quote, watching someone become the hero of her own life for me necessitated really just turning the volume up on the stakes. It's really domestic drama or domestic mystery, probably if in terms of if someone's looking for like a gory, violent, you know, turn, it doesn't go that way. And I don't think I could do that effectively. I can't even read those. I, when it starts to get gory, I turn the pages of something because I can't, I, I lost the, st- that's another change that happened after I, I had my kid. I like, I walk out, I'm like, nope. But so that's one of the reasons that I moved 
in this direction. And I like writing this way now. You know, my next book, which I'm working on, is also, you know, domestic mystery because it it makes it fun. You know, the thing is that I'm still writing in a similar way, meaning I still start with that initial question. I still have the song I listen to on repeat and everything still begins and ends for me with the central core relationships. I just like the idea of dropping people into a very hot pot of water in a different way. I also think when you take violence out of something, you have to be really clever. And essentially, Hannah works out this problem the only way she could. Mm -hmm. She's not a violent person. Mm -hmm. So I often think that about comedy when if you can't go to kind of the potty humor or Mm -hmm. like dirty humor, you know, so often the best movies are Mm G-rated, you know, like kids' Mm -hmm. movies or something like that's genuinely funny. Exactly. But I obviously want to ask you about that song that was on repeat Mm -hmm. and how it informed the book. Well, this song for me was, for this book, was If I Should Fall Behind by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. And the reason I say the whole name is it's a specific version of that song. It was recorded live at Madison Square Garden. And so, I mean, you can get it on Spotify or it's in, in on the live in New, in New York City album. But everyone in the band sings a verse of that song. And it's beautiful and slow. And I just find it so moving. And when I started working on the book, I imagined it as, as Hannah and Owen's wedding song. And not wedding song, like, you know, this isn't ruining anything, but they have a tiny wedding at a restaurant and there's no band or no music. But what I mean by their wedding song is I imagined as I was working on the book, this is the song that they dance to when the dinner party's over and everyone goes home and it's just the two of them feet up standing there. And one of them turns on their iPhone and plays it and they have one dance and it's to this song. So thematically, it was always their love song and like sort of the anthem to their love story. But I don't think I realized until deeper into the writing that it feels notable that I chose a version of it in which everyone in the band is singing. You know, his wife is singing a verse and the guitarist and the drummer, all of them. It's actually an incredible video to watch as well. But because ultimately the main love story here is between Hannah and Bailey. And this fits with that too. It's not just a love song between a man and a woman or, you know, between romantic partners, I should say, whoever those two romantic partners might be. But it feels more familial because of how everyone is singing. And yeah, and this is a love, the primary love story is a familial one. Something I also love about the book is specifically... Hannah and Bailey's relationship, but also how slowly they come towards one another. And before this devastating day for both Hannah and Bailey, where they realize that the the man in their life has disappeared, there's a lot of tension there or just wishing from Bailey's perspective that this woman would just leave, leave their family of two alone. I'm really interested in triangulation in terms of relationships. In this book, the triangulation that you sometimes see, especially with a stepmother, stepdaughter, husband, 
a father, husband slash father, is that the two women are competing for the man's love in some way. And so what I wanted to do here was the opposite of that. And both of them, the one thing they're certain about going into this tragedy is how much Owen loved each of them. And so Bailey doesn't want much to do with Hannah, but it's not because she's threatened by Hannah. She's just not interested in Hannah. And that feels very true to me about a 16-year-old. You know, she wouldn't be divisive. She would just be a little disgruntled maybe and totally uninterested in developing any sort of relationship. Her eyes already on the door. I want to be out of here in two years. I just don't want you here until I go. Like I imagine a conversation that Bailey might have had with Owen is, can't you just wait? I'm leaving home soon and you guys can do whatever you're going to do. That was one of the reasons I wanted her to be 16. Another reason I wanted her to be 16 was that if she were eight and chunky and adorable, you know, you can understand why Hannah would sort of flip everything on its head in order to protect this small child. But there is a version where Hannah made very different choices and just sort of protects herself. And so it felt to me more heroic, but also more like honest in some way, their relationship, because they need each other in a way, but they ultimately want each other. They ultimately realize that this is a relationship they both have really longed for. They're choosing it as opposed to it being chosen for them. And so that was something that I knew was going to take time for them to realize. It wasn't going to be something that Hannah was going to win because she makes her a good pasta. That was going to happen because, you know, I mentioned this in the book, but you learn to trust someone when they're not trying to earn that trust, when they're not paying attention, when you're both a little tired and you see what they do for you then. Now I want to talk about you and your husband, (laughs) because you're both adapting this for Hello Sunshine. Yes. I want to know how observing a screenwriter, because Mm -hmm. you've lived with one for so long, Mm -hmm. what it's like to observe someone doing this other thing, but what it's like to finally go, oh, like that's what he was doing. Yeah. And what that process is like and how you write together. Well, my husband's name is Josh um, Singer. He started off in television and then moved over into movies. And this show that we're doing together, turning the last thing he told me into a limited series for Hello Sunshine and for Apple, will be him going back into TV. And writing together has really been been fun. You know, we broke everything together and we had a team of really brilliant and talented writers who are working with us as well on several of the episodes, but we broke the pilot together first. And, you know, I don't advise that during a pandemic with no childcare necessarily, but it, so it involved a lot of working at night and then handing off to each other, but to sort of have an opportunity to explore marriage and family with the person you're in a marriage with and have a family with has been Pretty great. And he's always been my favorite writer since I met him. And so it's just been fun. And also because we're not precious with each other at all. We're always each other's first reader on things that 
you know, we, we're not collaborating on. So it seems like a natural extension to sort of collaborate on this and work together on this. We're almost done. We're, all seven scripts are going to be in next month. And then hopefully we're going to be in production early next year. Can you share the story of how you met? <laughs> we met at Book Soup. Um, I was giving a reading out here and a friend of his brought him to the reading, who is my friend's sister. And that's where we met. And it was so funny because I actually had food poisoning that day and I almost canceled the reading. Like I felt awful and I was not focused on anyone, let alone some guy. But I, I did when I remember meeting him that night and the next day we had coffee and yeah, and I ended up moving to Los Angeles from New York and that was pretty much it. I think it's interesting to think of Hannah moving from New York to California and not to, not at all because it's so annoying when people are like, Oh, that's drawn from your life. But I think there's something about being a, a fully fledged woman with your own life yeah. career, writing books and to meet someone and go, I think they're worth moving my whole life for. Yeah. You know, it's so funny that you just said that because I don't think anyone's asked me that and it hadn't even occurred to me, which is wild because it's such an obvious parallel that I, I must have clearly been drawing from. You know, I was, before I met Josh, you know, I think I was looking for a change and I have been spending a lot of time in L.A., but I certainly don't think I would have committed to uprooting and done so so quickly unless I had met him and found him. And yeah, that was that's quite similar to Hannah in that she had an established life and, you know, left, left it and started something new with someone. Well, what was it like moving to L.A. and being a novelist in a city that is so dominated by film and TV? And obviously now you've entered into that, but was there a freedom to that having come from New York or did you feel like no one thought you were important enough? (laughs) I think (laughs) I will. I think this story sort of sums up living in Los Angeles as a novelist, which is I was writing at a coffee shop and someone walked up behind me and said, that screenplay has a lot of words. And I was like, it's called, it's novel, it's prose. And I'm a novelist, you know, first and foremost, I'm dipping my toes in with this, but I'll always really be a novelist. And being here, it it allows certain freedoms because my editor can't drive over and get my book and tell me I'm late. And I've made some really wonderful friends who are novelists out here, which is really a nice thing because you sort of look for each other in the wilderness, but it's a different thing. I think you do feel slightly, it, it, you feel slightly more invisible. It is such a, it is a town where most people who are being, most people who are choosing to be writers are doing it in a totally different medium than you. I'd love to just quickly touch upon your editor, Mary Sue, because so often we don't talk about Mm -hmm. the profound relationship Mm -hmm. that can be, are that some people don't have those great stories with their editor, but what has it been like working with her? And can you tell us mm-hmm. about her personality and how yeah. just fabulous she is? Because, and also how the kind of conversation went when you wanted to try something new. And was it a surprise to her? Or how do you think she felt? Well, I have loved her 
long for long for years before she was my editor because I love so many books that she edits and I actually met her for the first time at a wedding before she was my editor and I just liked her so much as a person and then when I wrote 800 grapes she became my editor with that book and then my next book the whole time of which I was working on this book but I was terrified to show her because her opinion matters to me so much that if she wasn't excited or she said it wasn't working, I knew that would be it. And the, and the last thing you told me meant so much to me. So I remember I shot her an email in 2018 and I said, I'm sending you a draft of something and it's not what you think it is. Cause I was working on a different book for her and I still of all, and this has been such an extraordinary experience the publishing of of this you know and having readers respond to it in this way but my single best day is still when she wrote back actually she picked up the phone and called she wrote back and picked up the phone and called me and said you know this is your best book and the relief the you know that that was how she felt because as i as i say to her often I adore her and I'm terrified of disappointing her. So she's sort of the voice in my head. So when she liked it, I was like, I, I literally did cry because this book was so close to my heart. What a relief. Yeah. <laughs> and she's amazing. Like, you know, when I wanted, when I started off wanted, and I wanted to be a writer, my relationship with her is, you know, what I imagined, what you what, what I watched the movie Wonder Boys, one of my favorite movies, also one of my favorite books. So forgive me for mentioning the movie before the book. But and you see the relationship between Grady and that and his editor. And I'm like, oh, maybe one day I'll write a book and I'll get to have a relationship like that with my editor. And then it's just, so, you know, I mean, she's not helping me. Like, I think that they end up on some sort of crazy road trip looking for a stolen car something like that but you know we're very close friends in addition to her being my editor and I feel really really lucky about that for that before I ask you my last question yes. I'm not going to ask you to tell us about what you're working on because mm -hmm. that is the kind of secret musy place that you have to go as a writer but can you share what song you listen to with the new for this next one or is that too is that pushing it well i'm so early in the next one that i'm still in the playlist part of the next one Ooh. which is that i always pick the song out of like eight songs that i'm listening to and one emerges victorious or not victorious however you want to look at it but i'm still listening to several songs trying to figure it out it actually might be another bruce springsteen song which is crazy but well, for the last thing he told me, I think the Bruce Springsteen song is going to have to play the opening credits. I or think the closing. so too. I think it so has too. to be infused in there or in the most important scene. That's so funny. My the producer on that Hello Sunshine, as you mentioned, and Reese Witherspoon's producing partner. They both produce it. Her name's Lauren Levy Newstatter. I actually said that to her. She's amazing. I said that to her recently. I think that that should be, you know, in the trailer. And she's like, one thing at a time. But I really, I totally agree with you. Well, I'd love people to come to your book. That's mm -hmm. very presumptuous of me, being able to imagine Hannah themselves. Mm -hmm. But it's probably okay because if you're going to imagine one actress mm -hmm. being Hannah Hall, mm -hmm. I think 
we have the perfect person. So yeah. can you tell us who will be playing her? Yes, Julia Roberts is going to be Hannah Hall. So that is the plan, which is sort of dreamy, especially now because my research, you know, because if you're writing to someone's voice, you have to watch everything they've done. So I get to rewatch Ocean's Eleven and Aaron Brockovich and The Pelican Brief and Notting Hill. And, you know, it's just, it's sort of pinch, even though it's, you know, been going on a while that I've known that she's playing that part. It, I still sort of pinch myself about that. It's, it's really something. It's amazing. Well, my last question that yes. I ask everyone is what lights you up? That's such a great question. I would say my family. My family lights me up. A really good cup of coffee lights me up and cooking a meal for the people I love. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much, Laura, for Thank being on you. Lit Up and for your wonderful friendship and always cheering me on from the sidelines, I feel. I'm always cheering you on. You've always had my back. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Laura Dave. Her book, The Last Thing He Told Me, is available now and you can purchase it through the link on our website, LitUpPodcast.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Radofsky. We'll be off next week, but we will be back the week after. Have a great 4th of July, everyone. Until then, goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.